Hi, and welcome to another episode of On the Spot with Dr. Michael Walker. I'm excited to be here with you again, picking up in our study. We've been having a wonderful time talking about talking about ancient African Christianity, and I want to take us into a new direction as we're looking at the very fourth lecture here together. There's something in this particular study I think is going to be exciting for us. This discussion is awesome, by the way. We're having the opportunity to go firsthand looking at Christianity in the African context in its very earliest, earliest, earliest roots there in, in the period of ancient uh, African Christianity. And I want to just spend some time in a discussion with us talking about the passion of Perpetua and Felicitas. I know for some of you, this is new um, subject matter for you. You may not be as familiar with this particular account of two young women who were martyred for their faith in Christ. But I want to take some time to talk with you about it, have a discussion with you about it, because I believe it really does cause us to take another look at what it means to possess fidelity to Christ, what it means to identify as a Christian, what it means to have victory as death from this life, and then a sharp look at what it meant in terms of these two young women a wrestling with and accepting their definition of discipleship and how they understood discipleship as Christ to mean Christ before all, all things, all people, all circumstances, etc. In Luke chapter 14, verse 26, we find these words. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. No matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter where you are in your walk, these words, if you've heard them, read them, studied them, meditated on them, these words have brought you pause. I am no different from you. They brought me pause. They bring all of us pause. Why? Because in these words, we find the very words recorded as Christ having given instruction on what is required, the requirement to be his disciple. And he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yet even, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be not my disciple. If there are any words of Christ concerning how to be his disciple that shape the blocks of logic in one's mind, that rearranges the furniture of how you think about discipleship. It's those words of Jesus recorded in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. In this very challenging statement, Jesus establishes a criterion for discipleship that emphasizes a decision must be made by the disciple. That is, a decision must be made by the person who chooses to come to Jesus that includes putting Jesus above everyone and everything in that person's life. No person who desires uh, to come to Christ is exempt from wrestling with these words. At the most basic level, and I do mean at the most basic level, one must struggle with what does it look like to hate my parents, to hate my siblings, to hate my spouse, to hate my children, to yet even hate my own 
life. What does that look like in order to be a disciple of Christ? Is it possible to hate the people I love the most in order to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Do I have the capacity to place Christ above every relationship in my life that I value, that I love, that I cherish, that I hold near to me so that Christ can be before all things, before all people, and I be a fitting disciple. There, there really is not an easy uh, way to approach this. These are not easy questions to face. For all people desire to be loved and to some extent to give love to the people they cherish. In a very real sense, Jesus says to his hearers, as you're listening to him, he says to his hearers, you cannot be my disciple until you decide to place me above all people, to put me ahead of all people in your life. Until you do this, you cannot be my disciple. Now, the context of ancient African Christianity was where people came to Christ in the midst of making difficult choices pertaining to their families. We would like to believe it is easy for for the for the early believers or it was easy for the early believers to choose Christ and become his disciples. Yet that really was not the case. For instance, within the context of ancient African Christianity, that was the reality of choosing death over life in the process of witnessing for Christ. Situated now as a people governed by the Roman Empire because that really was the context of the ancient African Christian context. These were people who were situated in a context where the ruling power, the ruling government, the ruling forces was the Roman Empire. Now, in, in the Roman Empire, now it meant being a Christian came with being labeled. In the eyes of the Romans during this period, Christians were actually atheists. The Romans considered Christians to be atheists. Now, I know for some of you, you've heard the term atheist used, and when we use the term, we see that term and view that term differently in this 21st century context. But in this particular context, during the context and the period of the ancient African Christianity era, under Roman rule, a Christian was considered an atheist in the eyes of the Romans. So I need to explain to you a little bit about what that means. An atheist to the Romans was a person who would not give offerings to the Roman gods. To be a Christian meant being branded a cannibal. In other words, there were other labels that came with it. Romans also thought Christians were cannibals. Romans interpreted it, the Christian sacred text that gave Jesus's or that had record of Jesus telling his followers that they must eat of his flesh and drink of his blood as proof that Christians were cannibals. The Romans also thought that uh, uh, when the Christian Eucharist was discussed, they also used the Christian Eucharist to accuse Christians of eating babies. So, so that there are these that there are these labels that are being attached to publicly professing and declaring that one is a Christian in the eyes of the Roman and under the Roman Empire to publicly declare that one is or was a Christian in that context meant to be seen as a person who engaged in incest. This was another label that the Romans put on them. They said, well, hey, you know what? Those Christians, they, they engage in incest. And they their, their, their justification for this was simply this, that during this period, Christians greeted one another with a holy kiss and they referred to each other or one another as brothers and sisters. So the Romans now, Roman citizens, say, wait a minute. 
these folks are also practicing incest. So when you become a Christian now, in this particular context, you have to understand that it is not an easy decision. Now, we all have, hopefully you, you understand something about a little bit about history and world history. Well, if there's one thing about the Roman culture we understand through history is they were really a sort of a sexually loose people. But even for them to be labeled as one who was committing incest, that was just like going a step too far. So they 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 really saw these Christians, man, as not necessarily a positive benefit to the society. And when I go back and start with that very first label, that they're atheists and they're atheists because they won't worship or provide an offering to the Roman gods, that also meant they were seen as a threat to the well-being of Rome. Why? And the Roman Empire, because the Romans believed that these Roman gods and by paying tribute and on and all this and worship to those gods, literally preserve the well-being of the empire. So to really now take on the, the, the tone of becoming a Christian and, 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 and picking up that label, I am a Christian, you're going to publicly declare this. I'm just going to tell you, it really meant coming with some serious derogatory labels. And it also meant being branded an enemy of the Roman state. In the most basic terms, and I do mean this, in the most basic terms, to be a Christian in ancient Christ, during the ancient Christianity era or period, particularly during the second century, was to certainly be deemed a criminal. You, you, one would have been deemed a criminal in the eyes of the Roman, and that criminal um, label would have had everything to do with you don't want to do what's needed in order to preserve this empire, and that includes worshiping and honoring the Roman gods. This is way, way, way far, very far from our westernized view of what comes with being a Christian, particularly in the United States. So in this particular lecture, I want to introduce you uh, to two women. I want to introduce you to Perpetua, and I want to introduce you to Felicitas. And it's known as the passion of Perpetua and Felicitas, two women, uh, young women, uh, perhaps in their 20s, who were executed because of their witness to Christ. In 203 CE, a young woman named Vibia Perpetua, a 22-year-old wife, a mother of an infant, along with another woman named Felicitas, along with some other concubines, or catechumens, not concubines, <laughs> catechumens, uh, were slaves at, that had, or I should say slaves, slaves in the terms of they had been arrested by the Roman Empire. So that's probably not a good term. They were all on trial, arrested, and had been accused of not paying honor in terms of worshiping the emperor. So here they were, they were on trial. The crime is they won't worship the emperor. So they're all in deep trouble. Now, Felicitas was a slave. She was also a pregnant woman and she was arrested along with all the other catechumens and they were in the city of Carthage, a North African city. So this is taking place in North Africa. Now, the catechumens were under Roman arrest, charged with the crime of, again, refusing to worship the emperor. Could you imagine being here in America and being on trial because you refused to worship the president of the United States? It's unthinkable to you. It's unimaginable to you. This was their reality. Now, 
The reason we're taking some time to survey this and we're surveying the pastor, the reason we're taking some time to survey this is so that we can begin to understand some things about how, about how the disciples and the early believers of Christ understood discipleship, how they understood what it means to be a disciple, how they understood what it means to serve the Lord, how they understood what it means to love the Lord, how they understood what it means to go forth and do and have your being in the Lord. So it's important that you and I, as I sort of reach for my notes here on um, their, their, their passion or their sufferings, that you and I begin to understand very clearly that this was a very, 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 very serious matter. It wasn't something they took lightly. It wasn't something they would take lightly. It is something that can literally cost you your life. That's just why we want to look at it. So we can get a glimpse into how did the early believers appropriate themselves around discipleship and fidelity to Christ and how did they how did they do it now it's important for you and I to begin to understand what I mean by this term passion so when I use the term passion I'm not talking about love and erotica what I'm really talking about is suffering so this title the passion of uh, perpetual and felicitous is really the suffering of perpetual and uh, felicitous you can actually go out on the internet, by the way, and you can download a copy of this free of charge and read it for yourself through and through, study it and all that good stuff. And really what it is, it's a diary that Perpetua put together in her own handwriting. So one of the reasons it's so valuable to us in terms of Christian history is because here we have the actual words of one who was on trial, one who was convicted, one who was going to their death, and they're writing out. Uh, what their thoughts on things that they were experiencing. We really have uh, Perpetua's own ideas written down that we can read and study and, and analyze and critique and wrestle with. Now, there are four key areas that I want to focus on as we survey this diary. The first area is fidelity to Christ. What does it mean to possess fidelity to Christ through the lens of uh, perpetual felicitous and her fellow her fellow believers who were on trial with her number two what did it mean to identify as a christian now we have our own thoughts about that we have our own mind about that but what did it mean to identify uh, as a christian number three victory as death from this life this is something that comes out in this diary that victory was perceived as death from this life. Now, let's just be honest in this Western context, particularly in the American context, when we talk about having the victory in Christ, very, 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 very few people are talking about dying for Christ. Yet this young lady, along with her other fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, when they were talking about having the victory, as you're going to see throughout this, they were talking about dying. Dying for Christ is victory. And then finally, how did they understand and appropriate the term discipleship? How, how, what was discipleship? And we're going to look squarely at discipleship as Christ before all, Christ above all. That's a very, very unique 
form of discipleship. This is way past vacation Bible school. This is way past Sunday school. This is way past Wednesday night, Tuesday night, Thursday night, Bible study, Monday school and all that. We're talking about a discipleship where the, the ultimate goal is an unwavering commitment to Christ is before and above all. What does that mean? How, how, how does one appropriate such a thing? How does one deal with such a thing? So I'm going to read some sections from the diary and then I'm going to discuss some key findings from it and some ideas with you. Perpetual, let me give you some more background on her because I think it's important that you have it. Perpetual was a woman who belonged to a good family. So in her day, what that meant was she was a member of a family that was situated in a upper area or upper level of the social order. Yes, even in this day, there was social ordering. People were situated based on their social standing. She's not at the bottom. She's in one of those upper areas. Meaning, so when the text says in her diary, she came from a good family, this is alluding to the kind of family she came from in the social setting. The fact that she could write is a testament to her rare social status and her intellectual achievement during that day. Because the truth is, most people in that day, during this era, they were not able to write because, and they couldn't afford the materials for writing. In fact, uh, historians have helped, has helped us to understand that there were large amounts of people who were also illiterate. So we understand now that good percentages of early Christians were illiterate. Most of them did not possess the financial resources to purchase and make use of writing materials. So here we find a 22 year old woman who's a young married woman who also has an infant child that has made a personal decision to be a Christian, a decision that would ultimately mean, listen carefully, dying a painful public death because of her unwavering fidelity to Christ. So allow me real quick to read just a, a couple of sections from the diary and put those into your hearing because I, I, I want you to, to sort of hear a few things uh, in her own in her own hand. Uh, so here we go. While we were still under arrest, my father, out of love for me, was trying to persuade me and shake my resolution. Father, said I, do you see this vase here, for example, or water pot or whatever. Yes, I do, he said. And I told him, could it be called by any other name than what it is? And he said, no. Well, so too, I cannot be called anything other than what I am, a Christian. At this, my father was so angered by the word Christian that he moved towards me as though he would pluck my eyes out. But he left it at that and departed vanquished along with his diabolical arguments. For a few days afterwards, I gave thanks to the Lord that I was separated from my father and I was comforted by his absence. During these few days, I was baptized and I was inspired by the spirit not to ask for any other favor after the water, but simply the perseverance of the flesh. A few days later, we were lodged in the prison and I was terrified as I had never been before being in such a dark hole. What a difficult time it was. With the crowd, the heat was stifling. Then there was the extortion of the soldiers. And to crown all, I was tortured with worry for my baby there. 
then Tertullus and Pomponius, those blessed deacons who tried to take care of us, bribed the soldiers to allow us to go to a better part of the prison to refresh ourselves for a few hours. Everyone then left that dungeon and shifted for himself. I nursed my baby who was faint from hunger. In my anxiety, I spoke to my mother about the child. I tried to comfort my brother and I gave the child in their charge. I was in pain because I saw them suffering out of pity for me. These were the trials I had to endure for many days. Then I got permission for my baby to stay with me in prison. At once I recovered my health, relieved as I was of my worry and anxiety over the child. My prison had suddenly become a palace so that I wanted to be there rather than anywhere else. Then my brother said to me, dear sister, you are greatly privileged. Surely you might ask for a vision to, to discover whether you are to be condemned or freed. Faithfully, I promised that I would, for I knew that I could speak with the Lord whose great blessings I had come to experience. And so I said, I shall tell you tomorrow. Then I made my request and this was the vision I had. I saw a ladder of tremendous height made of bronze reaching all the way to the heavens, but it was so narrow that only one person could climb up at a time. To the sides of the ladder were attached all sorts of metal weapons. There were swords, spears, hooks, daggers, and spikes, so that if anyone tried to climb up carelessly or without paying attention, he would be mangled and his flesh would adhere to the weapons. At the foot of the ladder lay a dragon of enormous size, and it would attack those who tried to climb up and try to terrify them from doing so. And Satyrus was the first to go up. He was, he was later uh, to give himself up of his own accord. He had been the builder of our faith, although he had not been present when we were arrested. And he arrived at the top of the staircase, and he looked back and said to me, Perpetua, I am waiting for you, but take care. Do not let the dragon bite you. He will not harm me, I said, in the name of Christ Jesus. Slowly, as though he were afraid of me, the dragon stuck his head out from underneath the ladder. Then, using it as my first step, I trod on its head and went up. Then I saw an immense garden, and in it a gray-haired man sat in shepherd's garb. Tall he was, and milking sheep. And standing around him were many thousands of people clad in white garments. He raised his head, looked at me and said, I am glad you have come, my child. He called me over to him and gave me, as it were, a mouthful of milk he was drawing. And I took it into my cupped hands and consumed it. And all those who stood around me said, Amen. At the sound of this word, I came to, with the taste of something sweet still in my mouth. I at once told this to my brother, and when we realized that we would have to suffer and that from now on we would no longer have any hope in this life, a few days later there was a rumor that were going to be given that we were going to be given a hearing. My father also arrived from the city, worn with worthy, and he came to see me with the idea of persuading me. Daughter, he said, 
Have pity on my gray head. Have pity on me, your father. If I deserve to be called your father, if I have found, if I have favored you above all your brothers, if I have raised you to reach this prime of your life, do not abandon me to the repro reproach of men. Think of your brothers. Think of your mother. Think of your aunt. Think of your children. Who will not be able to live once you are gone? Give up your pride. You will destroy all of us. None of us will ever be able to speak freely again. If anything happens to you, this is the way my father spoke out of love for me, kissing my hands and throwing himself down before me with tears in his eyes. He no longer addressed me as his daughter, but as a woman, I was sorry for my father's sake because he alone of all my kin would be unhappy to see me suffer. I tried to comfort him saying, it will all happen in the prisoner's dock as, as God's will, or excuse me, as God wills. For you may be sure that we are not left to ourselves, but are all in his power. And he left me in great sorrow. I'm going to pause right there on the reading and, and just share a few things that are really big points that I think as we prepare to try to turn the corner and bring this to a close, that is really important for us to grasp in this particular lecture. The first question we will examine is how did Perpetua understand her identity? You see, identity has much to do with the person's condition, character, and being. This holds true today. It held true for Perpetua in her day. Identity can occur by three ways, force, inheritance, or election. By election, I mean choice. For this discussion, I will not get into much detail about each, but I will say this. For Perpetual, her Christian identity was by way of her intentional decision, meaning she made an intentional election, deciding to take on the identity of a Christian in her social and political context, not only meant being misunderstood, having rumors spread about town about you, uh, folks uh, being concerned about your well-being. It also meant taking a hard stand against worshiping the emperor and giving offerings to Roman gods. It meant putting your life on the line. This refusal to, to worship the Roman emperor, this refusal to worship the Roman gods literally was interpreted by the Romans as a threat to the very survival and prosperity of the empire. To be a Christian also meant you just became public enemy number one. In other words, to take on the identity of a Christian meant speaking truth to power in a way that would cost you your life. So in one sense, when we look at Perpetua and we look at her fellow brothers and sisters who were in, on trial and in the dungeon with her and in the prison with her that she began to see as a palace, they were all a type of truth telling prophet unto the Roman people. And their prophetic word to them was, we will not honor or worship any man above the Lord. We will not put any man ahead of the Lord. We won't worship them. We won't worship any God. There's only one God we worship. There's only one Lord we worship. There's only one Lord we honor. So it meant they were speaking truth to power in a way that would cost them their lives physically. 
It meant bearing witness to Christ by identifying as one of his followers, relinquishing, catch this, relinquishing any hope in the life that you are currently living while at the same time expectantly entering the hope in heaven that is yours. So it is, it is this, it is this grand di uh, separation from looking at life on this side as my hope. And being comfortable with knowing that everything is going to happen according to the to the Lord's will or according to God's will, even if it means I lose my life as I bear witness to Christ. Now, this this fidelity to Christ there, we have to ask ourselves, are we familiar with that kind of fidelity? But this gives us great insight, great insight to what these early believers were thinking how they were moving, how they were functioning as young uh, believers, young. C can you imagine if you're old enough, if you have a 20 or 22 year old kid, can you imagine your 22 year old daughter telling you, I'm going to die for Christ? Can you imagine your 22 year old son standing you, licking you in your face on both feet, flat, firm, and committed and saying to you, I don't care what they say. I don't care what you say. I don't care what this one say. I am going to die for Christ because I will not budge. I will not move from this position that I will not worship any man above the Lord and I won't honor any other God. I am immovable in that, in that area and, the, and dad and mom and brother and sister and aunt and cousin and grandma and whoever. There is nothing you can say that's going to change my mind. Fidelity to Christ in that way. Have you ever thought about it like that? Have you ever considered it like that? That's a big, big, big deal. And I want us to think about that for a moment. Fidelity to Christ for this young lady with her fellow brothers and sisters meant we'll go all the way to our grave because we're going on up to the shepherd's pasture anyway. Is that how you perceive fidelity to Christ? Do you have fidelity to Christ? Questions we must wrestle with. Perpetua told her father in a very straightforward way. She says, my Christian identity is so concrete that there is no other name I can be called by. Let, let's get, let's allow that to sink in. I am so united. I am so much one with my Christian identity that I cannot be called by any other name but Christian. Now, this gives us some insight into how early believers during these early centuries of ancient uh, African Christianity perceived their Christian identity. While we should not look at Perpetua as an example of all or, or her fellow brothers and sisters, we can, though, look at them because they were executed as understanding how some of the believers began to appropriate what it meant to have a Christian identity right there in North Africa. We, we can look at their executions and we can analyze their personal and intentional decisions because each one made a decision for themselves. They made a decision to identify as Christians. They made a decision to maintain that fidelity, fidelity which meant they made a decision to die for Christ if it came to that. 
from the very early sections of the diary, we learn in Perpetua's own hand, I mean, this is fascinating, that the very term Christian deeply angered her father. It bothered him. He, he trying to persuade his daughter. Come on, you understand where he's coming from. He trying to persuade his daughter. He trying to say something that would get his daughter to just come on out this dungeon because all you got to do is the way he see it is all you got to do is just go ahead on and say you you know give some honor, some worship and honor to this emperor and let's just come on home you don't have to die you don't have to abandon me you don't have to abandon your mother you don't have to abandon your, your brothers you don't have to abandon your child you don't have to abandon your aunt your husband you're, you're about to abandon all of us this could be stopped if you would just change your so he's trying he's trying to persuade his daughter to give up on this Christian thing and make this concession and come on now, let's go home and let's rest our nerves. Now, now, now this is a fairly logical conclu conclusion when one takes into account the love that a parent holds for a child. See, in his mind, all she had to do was just worship the emperor, emperor and save her life. You can say that you can stop this. You, you can prevent this from happening. This is a father who's persuading, practically pleading with his daughter. You can stop this. And he says, look, the only thing that is causing this to happen is your pride. So he's interpreting her fidelity to Christ as pride. By the way, have, have your fidelity to Christ ever been misunderstood? In that way, where you were exemplifying fidelity to Christ and someone thought you were just simply exemplifying pride. It is worth noting now that the love perpetual father held for her came with a limit. See, in a 21st century context, particularly a Western context, we typically view parents as willing to sacrifice their lives for their children. See, if you... Um, or the child or the parent in the relationship, we would like to believe that a parent will lay down his or her life for their children. Guess what? This was not the case for perpetuous parents. Neither her father nor her mother raised their hand, went to see the governor and say, hey, is there any way I can step in and take this death for my daughter that she might live? Father didn't say that. We have no record of it. We have no record of the father asking her to consider allowing him or, or the mother to try to step in and intercede for her. Although her father was willing to plead with her, although he was willing to ask her to break with her Christian identity, to separate and break with her fidelity to Christ, we have no record of him being willing to join her, take her place. Let me substitute for you so that you can live your life. We don't have no record of that. Listen, the latter most likely would not have appeased the Roman government anyway. We're going to be honest now. It probably wouldn't have appeased them, but we don't have no record of him trying to do it. Second, her father wanted perpetual. This is a big one here. Her father wanted perpetual to consider him or to put it more real plain. I'm talking about super plain. What he really wanted was her to place his desires for her above her Christian identity and fidelity to Christ. 
See, in a very real sense, her father was saying, choose me, your father, over Christ. Choose my desire for you over God's will for you. Her father was concerned about his public image. See, if Perpetual was, was executed as a Christian who refused to worship the emperor, this here would have been a big deal and it would have been a reflection upon him and the rest of their family in the Roman society. Her father understood Perpetua's death in that kind of manner would have branded him. It would have labeled him a man of reproach. He knew it. So in some way, he's also he's also wrestling with trying to preserve his his. his his, his, his standing in society if his daughter goes through with this thing. So he's wrestling with that. Listen, also the father wanted Perpetua to consider her own infant child, her mother, her brothers, her aunt. He said, look, why don't you just go ahead and try to think about putting your, your own son, your infant, put your infant's child, put your, put your, your mother, you know, your brother, look, look at your family, your mother, your father, your brothers, what have you. Come on, put those folks ahead of Christ and just, I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you to consider all of us and just put all of us above, listen carefully, your Christian identity and your fidelity to Christ. And the father just say, look, I know what this is. This ain't nothing but pride. You're being prideful. Drop your pride before you ruin all our lives. You see, Christian identity for Perpetua did not exist apart from complete fidelity to Christ. The two went hand in hand. They were coupled. They were linked. You, you, there was not one without the other. So to be a Christian was to bear witness to Christ in any situation without losing one's Christian identity and one's fidelity to Christ. In Perpetua and her fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, who are locked away to be executed. We see more clearly, or at least, at least carefully, that they have made a really, really intentional, life-altering decision. You see, to be killed on account of one's Christian identity and fidelity to Christ was an honor to behold. So they saw themselves as doing something honorable. Now this brings to bear a very, very, very sharp interpretation of James's words over in James chapter one, verse two through four and verse 12. I'm going to put those in your hearing so that you have it. Let me give it to you. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will perceive, excuse me, receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, now as I said earlier, at the very start of this lecture, lecture, perpetua, perpetua interprets Jesus' words literally. That's what we see. Unless you hate your father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and yes, 
even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. It appears by, by the deeds and the acts of perpetual, along with her fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that were on trial and on execution trial with her. It appears that they would have interpreted that literally. And the words in her diary and the narration that goes with it, which, which is recorded uh, with her execution or, or record of her ex execution, it confirms this. See, identifying as a Christian could not have been a light decision at all. They couldn't, it couldn't have been light. And they're not making decision when they're old. They're making this decision when they're young. It was the kind of decision that, as I said a moment ago, it was life-altering. To be a Christian was going to change the rest of your life on earth. To be a Christian in perpetuous Christian theology. By the way, everybody who's a Christian possesses a Christian theology that is distinct unto them that also cooperates or not does not cooperate with a corporate theology, a Christian theology, among other believers. So we have to first take a look at the the individual, the personal context, before we look at the corporate. We see here that perpetuous Christian, her personal Christian theology meant becoming Christ's disciple. And this could not occur apart from intentionally placing Christ before any person or before anything and before any God. That's her personal Christian theology. It is intentionally deciding, intentionally, intentionally, intentionally deciding to place Christ before any person, and that includes all family members. Now, this, in many respects, is quite different from how we might interpret what Christ meant by those words. In fact, it could be considered radically different. Because we, some of us may not even think Christ meant us to interpret those words literally. This, in many respects, means that we may possess a different interpretation of what Christ's words meant there when he said what he said about coming to him and being his disciple. Let me ask you a question. Do you understand having Christian identity and fidelity to Christ as an agreement to be killed for Christ? Let me give, let me ask you another question because I'm just curious. Do you understand having Christian identity and fidelity to Christ as not worshiping political leaders, even if it means you will be persecuted in any form available to the government? Hmm. Perpetua found herself thrown into a dark, hot dungeon. In her own words, something she never experienced before. Strapped with worrying for her infant child. Deeply in pain on account of her parents or siblings or relatives suffering on account of her condition. The dungeon was a place Perpetua had never experienced. It was a sort of torture that was foreign to her. In this, we see her Christian identity and fidelity to Christ has led her to jail, ultimately to be tortured. To be a Christian then and a disciple of Christ for perpetua 
meant being willing to carry her own cross. Now, if there's one thing you know about carrying a cross in the Christian context, is that two things surround a cross, suffering and death. That's what surrounds the cross. So if carrying your own cross means anything, we see here for Perpetua and her fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, it meant enduring personal suffering and death on account of your Christian identity and unwavering fidelity to Christ. In the next lecture, I'm going to, I'm really going to spend some time discussing victory as death over life. But I wanted to get us started with this because this is fascinating. I wanted to get us going in this direction because we should think about these things. We should be deeply committed to it from a Christian perspective. What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? What does it mean to possess Christian identity? What does it mean to possess um, uh, fidelity to Christ? And what does it mean to have discipleship as Christ before all. These are just some things that we're going to get into. We're going to keep going. We're going to dive into it. And next week, I'm going to go further because I really want us to, to be the best and most effective believers we can in our Christian identity and, and I'm careful with this, and our fidelity to Christ. And I just think there's some things we just need to rethink. Well, until I get a chance to talk to you again, I'll see you around like a donut. May the Lord bless you and may he keep you.